So Philemon is a short letter of Paul in the New Testament. Um, it's one of the shortest, actually, letters that we have of Paul. It's also one of the most personal letters. Um, there was, there, I wouldn't go so far. There were some commentators that called it a private letter. It's not quite that, because you'll see that it's addressed to several different people. But it's, it's certainly not like some of the other letters you have in the New Testament where uh, Paul or someone else would write one of these epistles. And the intention was for it to be kind of brought up in front of the church and read out to everybody, sort of like a sermon. That's not really what we have here. We're really getting something a lot closer to one of Paul's emails or maybe text messages, uh, which is kind of interesting. Maybe that can be instructive for us if this is what Paul's personal correspondence looked like. Maybe that'll make me think about how I write down my personal correspondence and emails and texts. Um, but this, if, if it was, you know, maybe it's pushing the analogy, but if it was more like an email or a text, this would have been one of those emails that you maybe took a little bit of time and you typed out and then you erased and you changed some words and you typed it out again and then you, you know, show your phone to someone else and say, does this look quite right? Because because it seems that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took a lot of time and was very specific about he worded, how he worded this particular letter. He had something really a little bit delicate and sensitive that he wanted to ask of the people that he's addressing um, this letter to. And so we're going to read, basically this is going to be a glimpse into the daily life and ministry of the early church, specifically around uh, the Apostle Paul. Um, and we get to see through this letter, how did they deal with real-life difficult issues, personal problems, social issues, cultural issues, disputes between people in the body? Now, it's interesting to compare this book to Colossians. Almost all the people that are mentioned here are also mentioned in Colossians, if you look carefully. Um, I, I, don't, I did not find the commentators noticed that there's not mentions of Philemon or Aphia, who we'll see here in a minute. Um, but a lot of these people are mentioned in, in Colossians. This is a letter addressed to people who lived in that city of Colossae. So there's some details that we, people maybe debate about the exact sequence of events with some of these things, but we do know some of the general broad strokes of what happened and they're recorded here in the letter for us. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to get into this, this short letter. The, the big thing that I feel like I was taking away as I was studying that I want us to draw from this this evening is we're going to talk a lot about the idea of submitting ourselves, submitting our liberty that we have in the gospel to Christ so that we can better love our brothers and sisters in the faith and we can better spread the gospel. That's going to be the big takeaway that I want us to draw here from Philemon. So we're going to read, I'll break it up into chunks, and we'll read it in sections. Um, again, not a big letter, but we're going to kind of dig into what we have here in terms of learning how to submit to one another in Christ. So let's just read this greeting here, the first three verses. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, just again, you would always have these greetings where he picks maybe some specific people to reach out to. But this is a little different because you'll notice there's really only three names here. And he groups them together and he says to these people and then to the church in your house. So it seems like these three people are to be located together into one household. How we, we, most people think that broke down is it looks to us 
as if Philemon, the beloved fellow worker, was a prominent, uh, probably a little bit more well-to-do member of that church because there was a church in his house. And typically how that would work, as we'll, we'll find out, is that the more, one of the more wealthy members of the Christian community would just open their home up hospitably to be the place where people would meet um, as, as a church, essentially, because they typically wouldn't have a building that they could use. So we, we believe that Philemon is that member, maybe even an elder in that fellowship, and it would kind of stand to reason that Aphia would be his wife, and we think it's possible that Archippus, who Paul calls his fellow soldier, I think it's kind of, assuming that this is uh, Philemon and Aphia's son, I just there's almost like this little bit of a fatherly kind of way that Paul talks to him, saying, Archippus, my fellow soldier, you know, he's like just, and he, this is the tone that Paul uses throughout this. It's this very fatherly, winsome tone. With, with these people, even though we would, the way we would look at things, Paul is in authority over them. You're going to see that the whole throughout this letter, he never uses that authority in a way to talk down to them or condescend to them. He's always approaching them winsomely and kindly as a brother in Christ. And, and again, as always, Paul identifies himself as a, in a lowly way. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Timothy is our brother. I'm writing to Philemon, our fellow worker, and calling Aphia his sister, and, and Archippus is his fellow soldier. He's, he's never identifying himself as above these people, even if we could in the natural say that he might have deserved or could have taken that by right. So, again, he's already developing this, this example for us to follow. So, we see these other people mentioned, Paul's talking about their shared heritage. And again, this, is, this shouldn't surprise us, right? This is always Paul's attitude uh, in, in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So, again, the gospel is uniting these people. Paul isn't seeing there to be any division between people. Now, this is going to be very important because of the sensitive issue that Paul's about to, to write to them about. So, he's, you can see how this is maybe one of those letters that Paul might have massaged the wording on very carefully. He's being very wise and maybe even a little bit shrewd in a way that he addresses this letter. He's building a little foundation here. He's approaching them and saying, hey, remember how we're all together in the gospel and we're all one family. And then he's going going to go on from there. So he also greets kind of secondarily this church. He says to and the church in your house. Um, again, like I said, a lot of times at this point that the Christians would be meeting in each other's houses. Now, let's just set the groundwork for that a little bit because this is going to be important later on. So let's imagine, for example, that in our fellowship, we all met at the home of the wealthiest person that goes to the church. Now, I can see some of you being, you know, that might make some of us feel a little certain kind of way, a little bit awkward, right? We, in our society, money is a bit of an interesting thing. Now, I don't imagine that it was so different back then, but maybe it was a little more outwardly easy to see who that might have been. So you can already see something, oh, okay, that, I could see how that could make some awkwardnesses. We all go to this very nice house that someone has, and we all kind of traipse in there, and that's where we have church. Okay, I can, you can see how we might have need to have some extra grace for each other, maybe, in some ways in that situation. Now imagine that some of the people in that congregation belong legally to some of the other people in that congregation. Oh, now we can see how that might be very difficult. 
right? All of a sudden, the body of Christ is cutting across in the early church all of these social and cultural and class and wealth and all of these distinctions that the world would put up. And the body of Christ is just a huge cross-section and they're all together meeting and fellowshipping and loving one another in a way that probably, and not probably, historically, definitely looked very weird to the people around them. This was one of the biggest issues that the, the Romans and the Greeks had with the church. They said, you all are weird. You are mixing up things that are not meant to be mixed up. You're causing problems in our culture. We have a nice way that things are laid out, and you guys end up messing that all up. So, <laughs> this is a situation where you can imagine that supernatural love and, and love where people would be willing to submit one to another would be pretty vital. I can't imagine that group of people getting along otherwise, right? You can see some big conflicts that are going to be present in any room where these people are. And Paul's establishing from the beginning of the letter that all of them are equally bound to serve Jesus, regardless of who they might be. And so then... This is going to enable him to make the big old request that he's about to make. So, starting in verse 4, going through verse 6, he's going to start to, to get towards that request. But, again, it's, it's Paul. Paul is an elder. He's shrewd. He's not going to get quite to the point just yet. In verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints that have been refreshed through you. So Paul is saying that he's remembering. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul was praying for them. And he was excited to hear the reports of the fruit of that ministry of prayer. Now, we, we believe, best of our knowledge, that at this time, Paul is in, under house arrest in Rome. So you imagine Paul's got some time on his hands. <laughs> he's, he's got some time to be improving his prayer life. I'm sure Paul was pretty good at that already. But he's been hearing these reports that are being brought to him of how, how this church at Colossae is flourishing and the love and the faith that they have. And he's so excited by that. He's, he's excited to hear that they're doing well. And so he keeps praying that this is gonna, they're going to keep being able to share that love and the faith together. And then that's going to be effective in sharing the gospel. So he's got these, this dual prayer. I, I'm praying that you guys will be loving one another and that because of that love that the Holy Spirit is giving you, that you'll be effective when you go out and when you share the gospel. He's linking these two things. He's emphasizing again the unity uh, that, that they have. He's saying, I, I, I'm so excited to hear that you guys love one another and that you love all the saints and that that's, that's uh, something that's distinctive about you. And that blesses me that people keep mentioning that. You know what's cool about their churches? They love one another and they love all the believers. He's emphasizing that unity. And again, this is important to note. We cannot be united to Jesus or love other believers or share our faith effectively without the love of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is setting up right from the beginning of this letter. We, we can't hope to do these things if we don't have the supernatural love of the Holy Spirit. Not going to be possible in the natural. Yeah. Psalm 133, verse 1 uh, says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that's a, it's a psalm of David. It's one of those songs of ascents that they would sing when they're going up to Jerusalem. You know, geographically, Jerusalem's on a hill. If you want to get to Jerusalem, you've got to go up from somewhere. It doesn't really matter where you come from. And as they were coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate these feast days that the Lord commanded them to celebrate, they'd be singing one of these psalms. It's a psalm of ascents as you ascend that hill. 
And what's interesting about that is David writes that psalm, and I always find it interesting where he says, it's good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together, together in unity. Now David would know because he was also quite aware of how bad and unpleasant it was when people didn't dwell together in unity. He had all these issues in his own family and in his own kingdom, right, with all these problems and wars and, you know, his sons dying. David knew what it was like when there wasn't that unity. He knew that that wasn't a default state for people. Without the Lord... He knew there wasn't going to be goodness and pleasantness and people weren't going to be dwelling together in unity. And it's worth it to ask ourselves this question even right away. Is that something that could be said of us? Do we have this kind of unity in love? Are we marked as a fellowship of believers by how we stick together, how we care genuinely for one another, how we bear with one another? Now, I, I, I really do think so, honestly, before the Lord. And I hope and I pray that, that we continue to grow in that. Because I don't want us to forget that this is a key marker of our Christian faith. This is one of the ways that you can gauge how you're doing, both as a believer individually and then as, as a church body. That's what Paul's saying. What reports, I wonder, would Paul get from our church? You know, it's, oh, I'm, you know, he's stuck somewhere and he's hearing a report from the Church of Trustville. And I tell you, this is how they are. You know, and I certainly hope, and I, I honestly would commend you guys, I believe that one of the things that I notice about us as a fellowship is our love for each other. And I, I, I pray that that is what Paul would hear from us. There's nothing that's more blessed. You know, I was joking about it just a minute ago. But genuinely, one of the biggest blessings that I get to have just on any given Sunday or Wednesday is if I come up and do announcements, I get to just have, you know, 60 seconds to just sit here and watch the church just love on one another. And it's a really, really special thing. You guys, I mean, that's a blessing. You guys don't know that that's not true everywhere that you go, right? I mean, maybe some of you guys do know. That's, that's not true everywhere that you go. That calls itself a church, but there may not be that unity and that love and the loyalty and just the tenacity of clinging to one another that God has blessed us with. That's not just because we're nice people, right? I'm not sure if you're all aware, but we're not all nice all of the time. Right? That's not just because we're great and everybody else is bad. It's because of the unique work of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord wants to do that in every fellowship. He wants to be bringing people together so that they love one another in a way that makes other people say, that's not normal. People don't just do that. Maybe you've had that experience where an unbeliever looks at you and says, you're just, y'all are weird. What do you mean? Well, you just, that's not, you shouldn't be like that. People don't act like that. And it's true. They don't. Normally, people don't have that kind of love for one another. That's why Paul notes it and says it's special. It's from the Lord. I commend you guys, not only for having demonstrated, and this is going to be important in a minute, not just that love for one another, but the love that you've demonstrated for your pastor. This is something that I get to really, I, I, especially because I think I have that role sometimes of being able to observe this, and because it would be weird sometimes for a pastor to say, thank you so much for being so awesome to me. But I would like to point out that I believe that the Lord is doing that work in our fellowship that you guys specifically love on and care for and respect and honor your pastor in a way that I think is unique. And I want to commend you guys for that. That's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Continue to delight the Lord's heart in that way. The Lord's blessed by that. And I want us to, to continue to be persevering in these things. Okay, so now we're now Paul has, has you know, spent seven of his, let's see, 27 of his 25 verses <laughs> have already been spent just laying the groundwork. Now he's going to get to his appeal here at first. So beginning in verse 8. He says, Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I prefer, prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So he says, look, it's because I know that you love me and I love you in Christ. I can confidently make this request. I'm not going to command you. I'm going to make a request of you. Now, 
Our spiritual authorities that are placed in our lives are there because the Lord has put them there to remind us of what the godly thing is to do. And it's important to note that Paul doesn't say, I, I can't, you know, I'm not, not going to command you. That would be ridiculous. He says, no, I could command you, but I'm going to choose to make an appeal to you. Now, this goes against maybe some of the things that we're used to in our culture, because we're a little bit of an anti-authoritarian. You know, we're American, and we don't really like people telling us what to do around here. However, it is important that we do pay attention to and respect and love the people that God has placed in that role in our lives because of the sacrifice and the wisdom that's required for them to be in that position. If you are following someone in Christ who's your pastor, your elder, somebody who's discipling you or mentoring you, it ought to be someone that you're willing to, if they were to come to you and say, I command you in Christ to do this, that you would be willing to heed that. Now, that's a pretty heavy thing. And I know that some of you guys may have gone through situations where that was misused in your life. And I understand that. But we've got to understand that this is the ideal. That, that we should be able to receive that from someone because they're standing in that place where they love you and they want to see what's best for you. And they're hearing from the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the goal that we should have, right? Is that we're following somebody that we have, the Lord has given us that faith to say, yeah, I'd, I would accept that from them. This is the situation that they were in with Paul. Paul says, look, I could just tell you, I'm bold enough, but out of love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. We should have that love for each other in the church that would allow us to submit to one another when we're in the wrong, or even when just another brother or sister has wisdom to impart. So easy when someone comes along and says, you know, I've noticed this is a good way to do this. You should try that. And it's very easy for us to get defensive and say, oh, okay, cool. I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. Pretty much every time I've approached something with that attitude, I, you know, if you were to chart the course of my life, like one of those little graphs of the stock market or something, you're about to see a really bad drawdown. It's about to happen when I approach something with that attitude. Yes, thank you very much for your advice. I will be just fine. Not really. Because usually that advice is not just human advice. It's the Holy Spirit working through someone else to encourage and instruct me. So who, do I really want to be in that position of, no, thank you, I do not want this Holy Spirit-enabled supernatural advice coming from someone else in the body of Christ. No, I don't, I don't want to be there, right? These appeals are important for us to listen to. Our relationships to one another aren't supposed to be marked by aloofness or selfishness or, or self-protection. Do you guys know that the Bible doesn't necessarily teach that freedom and personal liberty are the highest good for the individual? All right. That, that's not a teaching that we get from Scripture necessarily. Now, does God love us all individually? You know, God made you special and He loves you very much, right? And that's, that is true. That's biblical. However, our goal in life is not to be marked by how can I pursue that which is most appealing and pleasant and excellent for me as an individual, not in Christ. We ought to be looking to each other and one another and be willing to prefer one another, right? We know all this from, from, from the Bible. It's all over Scripture. So I know this is a strong command, and I'm aware that there might be concerns about some potential problems. Well, if I do that, then everybody's just going to run roughshod on me. Or, well, I did that once, but then what happened is someone abused that authority over me, and they hurt me, or they harmed me in some way. I'm aware that there's all these potential dangers to obeying what the Lord's asking us to do. The only way that we're going to please the Lord in this matter is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's true whether you're in the position at any time of being a person following or a person leading. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do that correctly. A leader has to be filled with the Spirit to not abuse that position of authority or make mistakes in a way that would harm other people. A person who's in the position of following has to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to receive that leadership and obey and do what the Lord's asking us to do. It's all down to us being willing to walk in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't hedge those natural failures with legalism. 
And that's what legalism always wants to do. I'm worried about what might happen if, so instead I will. I'm concerned that if I walk in grace the way the Lord's asked me to, then this bad thing might happen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this nice fence up over here so that'll never happen. What's the problem? Legalism is not powerful to deal with the things that go on inside our hearts. It doesn't actually fix it. It just keeps us from enjoying the liberty that God wants us to enjoy. And it doesn't even fix the problem it intended to fix. 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 13 through 16 says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So there's a lot to break down in there, and uh, we're not teaching First Peter 2 tonight, so we're not going to get to all of the details and the practical application of what that looks like. But I want us to notice a couple things. It says we're to submit ourselves for every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And that does mean that sometimes these authorities that God might place in our life might not even be people who are saved or believers, right? Remember, people who are <laughs> the people that they're writing to when it says the king is supreme or governors, those are not like super nice people that were believers. These were really awful pagan Romans. And sometimes we're actually persecuting the church and they're still saying, hey, but these are the people God's aware. God didn't make a mistake. You know, God, God placed that person in your life for a reason. That can be true. The Lord can use pretty much anybody. We know the Lord used a lot of pretty crazy people. You, you read, read the Bible, you can, you can tell the Lord's not hampered by people's sin. So we're supposed to submit to those people because they're sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers. He said, This is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free. Right? We are free. We're free in Christ. That's true. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. That word bond servants is going to be important here in a minute. God's, let's, let's refocus maybe on the Lord's body. Yes, that's how we behave outward. Yes, I know. I'm supposed to pay, you know, I've got to pay my taxes, got to do all that stuff. But, but what does that have to do with the body of Christ? Just like we see in the early church, the people that are within the body of Christ are so radically different from one another that it often requires good and strong and loving authority to rein them in and keep them in fellowship together. That's, that is one of the reasons why God has set up authority in the church, is that there are many times where we will need balance, and it requires the Holy Spirit guiding your leader to see when that's happening. Because if you just look at it in the natural, you just start trying to make, well, we've got to make a rule for this rule, then we've got to have an edge case over here, and then one if this, and all of a sudden you're not walking in liberty, you're walking in a bunch of rules and regulations. You've come up with a new law to try and take care of things. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, there are times when a leader has to say, you know what, this is all right, we're doing fine here, but I'm going to, you know, we've got to rein this in, this isn't going to work. And no, you've got to hang out with him, like, we've got to do this together, this is, and no, I know that you don't like this, but you can't find in Scripture where that's a problem, so you're going to have to allow them that liberty, you have, we have to be able to do that together. I think one of the best examples that I can see of this is when you look at Calvary Chapel in the very early days in the 60s and 70s. One of the first works that the Lord did within Calvary Chapel was bring together a bunch of people that ought not to be together. You know, y'all, some of you guys are maybe more familiar with Calvary Chapel just from like what, what you see here, right? But, and, and a lot of times we get, as, as Calvary, we get this reputation of, well, yeah, that's, that's the casual church and that's the church where everybody kind of comes as you are. Very true. Love that. It's important to remember, though, that Pastor Chuck was one of the most squared away men 
that I have ever seen. If you look at Pastor Chuck teaching on a Sunday, he would stand. This is not how Pastor Chuck <laughs> came on a, on a Sunday morning. Pastor Chuck came in a suit jacket with a squared away, you know, button down haircut. And he, he looked, he was a square. You know, and I mean that in I mean that in love. What you have to understand about the ministry that the Lord brought to Pastor Chuck is that Pastor Chuck was part of an old guard generation that was looking at this hippie generation and saying, They are not like us and I do not like them. They are not buttoned down. They are not straightened out. They 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 are not doing, you know, the, they're not they don't have a job and they need a bath and they need a haircut. That was his attitude. So when the Lord took that guy to be the pastor to a bunch of very unsquare people, it was a unique work of the Holy Spirit. Now you've got a church that are filled with all kinds of different ridiculousness. This guy, and, and, and that was really literally the story of the early Calvary movement is, okay, these guys kind of used to be in, in a group of people that wasn't super great. And we don't know what she was doing before, but she's here now. And these guys, you know, one of the stories I, I, I love, not because the Lord is excited about sin, but because the Lord loves transforming people's lives is one this is a story that gets repeated over and over is, Pastor Chuck was allowing these guys to form this band, this worship band called Love Song, and, and they were so excited they would get to play music in the church. They were just over the moon, and, and he said, okay, well, how soon can you play? And one of the guys says, well, well I can't remember if it was the bassist or somebody. We'll just tell the story that way. He says, our, our bassist is currently doing probation for a marijuana conviction. So as soon as he gets that sorted out, then we can play. Now, most pastors would hear that and say, never mind what I just said. That's not what Pastor Chuck said. He said, okay, you sort that out, and then you can go ahead and play. Because he, he saw that the Lord was using very different people. People that the world would say, there's no way that's going to work. You're sitting on a powder keg. That's going to blow up in your face. And you know what? Sometimes it did. Sometimes it did. But it was better that the Lord would move the gospel forward through these unnaturally together people, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we, we're, we want to, and we are seeing the same thing in our fellowship. Praise the Lord, right? Look, I love you guys, but y'all don't belong together in the natural. <laughs> Well, let's be real honest, right? There's some super different folks even in this room. And that's what's fun about it. Because you know it's the Holy Spirit doing it. I couldn't go collect, you know, Tyler couldn't walk through a bunch of neighborhoods and say, I'm going to pick this one and that one and this one and this will work. That's not how this happened. I don't know if you guys are aware. Um, but it's the Holy Spirit that does this, which is wonderful. All right, verse 10. So, Paul says, I appeal to you for what, Paul? What do you, come on, man, what's the appeal? I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me. And I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on behalf, uh, excuse me, serve me on behalf on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion of your own accord. Uh-oh. Here's the request. So it seems from the best that we can piece things together that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon's who had run away. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm, I, Onesimus has found his way to Rome in some way. And in showing up and, and meeting me, he's gotten saved. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to send him back to you. And I'm writing this letter to go along with him to let you know what's happened so that you can receive him in a way that I hope that you would receive him. He wants him, he's appealing in love that he be received back as a brother. Now imagine how Onesimus feels about this. Right? He has just flown the coop. We don't know the circumstances. It seems that he may have stolen some things, actually, if, if we're reading between, not even between the lines a little bit, but he has ripped his owner off a little bit in more ways than one. And then he, he gets saved, he gets his life right with the Lord, and he's thinking, all right, I'm free in Christ, and I'm here in Rome, and not back in Colossae. This is awesome. 
And Paul says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and write this letter and send you back. Now, he loves Paul, right? He's going to defer to Paul as the person who, you know, walked with him through getting saved. But that's got to come as a heavy weight. This is a serious thing, by the way. The Roman Empire was built on slavery. The majority of the people in the Roman Empire were in an enslaved status. And there were severe penalties for, for runaways. You had the legal and, to the Romans anyway, the moral authority to do exactly whatever you pleased with slaves. And typically... You got to understand, Roman slavery is not even the same thing as what we see in, in, in United States 1800 situation. It's, it was a very different thing. It was a legal status, and a lot of times people would be very well treated, but not always. There was no guarantee they'd be well treated. It was just kind of what you did because you were a nice person, but you could do whatever you wanted, and some people did. So imagine how he feels when Paul says, I'm going to send you back. Paul loves Onesimus, though, and he wants to make sure he's treated as a brother, but he chooses not to coerce Philemon. Remember, Paul could, he said, look, I could just tell you, do this and that, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do work in your heart so that this is something that you want to do out of, out of what the Lord is, put, is moving through you to do. Paul's appealing to the love that unites Paul and Onesimus and asking that that same beloved sonship be extended from Philemon's household to Onesimus. So Paul's saying, here's the relationship that I have with your runaway slave is that he's like a son to me. I'm asking that he would be like a son to you, not, not in this slave relationship anymore. And, and you'll notice, remember Paul, <laughs> Paul's pretty funny, I think, in this letter, which I, I, this is just kind of amusing. First of all, you remember that Paul has said, listen, I, Paul, an old man <laughs> and, and a prisoner of, right, Paul's pointing out, just so you know, I'm Paul and I've, I've been around the block a little bit and I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in a Roman, in a Roman house arrest, you know, just for the record, I just want to make that clear. And, and then he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then verse 11 is, we think, a pun, basically, on Onesimus, which means useful. And he's saying, formerly he was, you know, not useful. I, I tried to find a way to put that into the English in a pun, and I quit because the dad jokes were too bad even for me. So, um, he, look, he wasn't useful before, but now he is really Onesimus. He is really useful now because he's been saved. So he's, he's, making, he's trying to lighten the situation with humor here and, and, and just being really winsome. He could do it differently, but he's choosing to do it this way. See, I'm sending him back to you. My very heart would have been glad to keep him with me, but I'm preferred to do nothing without your consent. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, starting in verse 21 through 22, says, Were you called while a slave? This would have been the situation of a lot of believers that, that Paul was writing to. Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So, if you were hoping this evening for Paul's huge social, you know, political address to the terrifying, awful human problem of slavery, Paul's instruction in Scripture is, don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. Don't be concerned about it, Paul. Like, this is concerning to me. <laughs> like, I, I, I have this legal status where if this person decides to punish me for any infraction by killing me, that will not be charged as a murder. People will say, oh, it was your slave. You could do whatever you wanted. Right? I'm concerned about that, Paul. What do you mean, don't be concerned about it? What, what should happen? What should we do? 
To Paul, the gospel made a direct assault on hearts and minds, so totally transforming individuals that he was trusting that's what was going to totally reshape the society and culture that he lived in. That was plenty good enough for Paul. Paul said, ah, I got, I got a plan. Watch what's going to happen. The Lord is going to change all these people to the point that it really doesn't matter whether you're slave or free. It's all good. It's fine. If, if you're called as a slave, it's all right. You're the Lord's freed man. That, that's more important than your earthly status. And if you're called as free, guess what? You're just as much of a slave as those people that you might even own according to the law. Does, who cares about the law? We're all Christ's bond slaves. That was Paul's opinion of the situation. Now, this supernatural wisdom from the Holy Spirit about slavery, and by the way, you could apply this to lots of other societal issues, uh, pleases basically nobody. Doesn't really matter what your radical political views, nobody likes this. And, and, and the, the reason why is because everybody thinks that they have a better solution in the natural. Well, Paul, this is ridiculous. You can't allow people to stay enslaved. What about the justice of the thing? We've got to do this and this structural, this and that, right? And, and then people over here, well, Paul, that's an infringement on everybody's individual liberty. And don't you understand that all of these liberties are self-evident and we have to, you know, this and that and the Constitution says, okay, guess what? None of those people are happy because Paul's willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of changing people's hearts and minds. And he, why is he willing to do that? Because he knows that's the most effective thing. He's aware that the Holy Spirit's work is going to so destroy what makes these terrible sin issues possible that it will be way more effective than if he tried to go about this in any other earthly way. Now, look what he's asking. By the way, it's a big ask from Paul. You know, serving, choosing to do this, everybody's making a sacrifice to go about this in, in a way of Christian love. It's not just, you know, obviously, uh, Onesimus is having to take this potential risk and return to his master. And Paul's asking Philemon to give up the, potentially all the value and productivity that is represented by this person who lives in his house and works for him. And, and that was a big deal. You've got, you got to remember, people, it wasn't always this sort of awful, awful situation that we think of in our very recent American history. A lot of times these would be household people that you would, they'd be taken care of, they'd be watched over, they might be a tutor often would be a slave, a person who'd sell himself into slavery so he could be set up um, to, to teach and, and would be taken care of. So, but even so, that situation is still going to be on their mind. Yeah, I've got this good setup, but it could change at any moment. There's always going to be that anxiety. And, but Philemon's being asked to give up this, this setup. Onesimus, obviously, is taking this huge risk. Paul's going to lose the assistance and company of his dear spiritual son. He's also making this sacrifice. But to Paul, it's worth it to do it this way, because this is what the gospel and what the Holy Spirit's love is, is calling them to. It's better to do it in this higher way than handle it in any other way, even, even that they might have the right to handle it. But he's not choosing to go about it that way. So let's go ahead and read here in verse 14 through 17 and see kind of where he goes from here. Remember, he says, I preferred to do nothing from verse 14 without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. For if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So Paul loves Onesimus. He's comforted and aided by having him there in Rome, but he knows it's the right thing to do to send him back to Philemon, to give Philemon the opportunity to do what's right of his own free will. And remember, 
the, the possible ceiling and floor here of what could happen next to Onesimus are pretty wide. Under Roman legal authority, Philemon can do absolutely what he pleases at this point. He, he's got all these options, you know, selling him to somebody else who could terribly mistreat him, punishing him in any way, you, you know, possible. I was, I was looking at a commentary and they actually have archaeologically these little tags that would be placed on slaves that were sent out to do certain things outside of the home, uh, send a message or whatever. It's a little tag that basically says, if you find me and I'm not where I'm supposed to be, grab me and bring me back to my master. So that's how the Romans handle this, right? And, and Philemon has that authority. But in Christ, love is the law, and Paul knows that. So he, he, Paul is saying, look, I want us to handle this the way that the Lord would want us to handle it, which is to treat everybody without partiality. Treat him like you'd treat me. There's no difference between us and Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Are there certain types of people that we treat differently than others, even when there are Christian brothers and sisters? I mean, yeah, we're all tempted to this. We may think that we're not, but it, this definitely happens, right? There's always this temptation to grade people and rank people, and there's always acceptable ways to do it. There's ways that we say, oh, I would, I would never, ever do that. But then there's ways that, oh, yeah, well, that's, of course. We, you know how that kind of person is. Or you know what's about those people where they live, or you know how it is when you get rich, or you know how it is when you're poor, or whatever it is that we do, we're always tempted to assign people in our minds into what is possible for the Lord to do with them based on anything except just what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It's, it's very tempting for us. But the problem is that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. The sin of partiality is a sin. Plain and simple. And we're all tempted to this. But this is not how Jesus wants us to act. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, or not, sorry, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And remember, this is not the only time Jesus had to mention this, by the way. <laughs> this was a little bit of a challenging concept for his followers, who are all young Jewish men, where slavery is not a thing that the Jews are doing at that time. So like, yeah, we're way better than the Romans. We don't do the slave thing, Jesus. You're not going to, no, I'm not going to be anybody's slave. And Jesus says, well, I'll be your slave. So I would expect you to be willing to do the same thing. If I, as your, as your Lord, am willing to take that place for you, surely you can do that for one another. That shouldn't be a problem. In, Pastor Tyler said it all the time, in Christ, these things are no thing. Money's no thing. Status is no thing. Class and you know, race and, and position and authority, this is not a big deal. The, God has put this person at the head and you at the foot. Okie doke. That's fine. That's what God chose to do. God's placed me here and them there. All right. The Lord, the Lord does it. The Lord knows. And, and, and we ought to be able to have that attitude where none of us are looking up or down, right, and, and having some sort of problem. It's not how Jesus sees it between us. So Paul's making this really strong, uh, this, this appeal to him and asking him to choose to see this through how the gospel sees it, rather than how, let's be honest, how all of his friends and neighbors would have encouraged him to see it. What do you mean he just ran off? Oh, and he, oh, he took some stuff too. Oh, bud. I'll tell you what I, I'll tell you what I would do. Here's what I did, you know, I'm sure is the kind of advice that his Roman neighbors are giving him. But that's not what Paul is asking him to do. Verse 18 through 21. 
Paul says, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. <laughs> yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul could, you know, Paul knew how to write it. The Holy Spirit, when you're, when you're writing an email under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You have this unfair advantage, right? Where you're able to say exactly the right thing. And Paul, and remember, Paul is writing this alongside of Timothy. I wonder if maybe something he he's dictating, you know, and he says, or it says he's writing this part with his own hand. But oftentimes there was this, you know, because of Paul's eyes and stuff, you know, there was this cooperation where someone would sometimes even help him out to write things. And he says, hey, Timothy, look, at, what are you, is this right? Or should I, I don't know, is this too strong? Or should I change this part? And, you know, they're talking about how they can kind of make this appeal on Onesimus' behalf. So Paul says, look, it's my responsibility. You, you charge it all to me. Whatever it is that he owes you, you, you take care of that. I'll, 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 it's no worry. Now, the implication is not that Paul is expecting to receive a detailed bill in the mail from Philemon with all these. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you can charge this to me, but please remember that you do owe me your own soul. <laughs> just, just please recall that I am the one who the Lord used to minister to you and bring you to faith. So just, just for the record, that's all. I'm just, just making that note. How, you let me know how that balances in the leisure against what it is that he took from you. It's up to you, right? Paul is trying to make this case, right, where he's saying, finally, I'm encouraging you to think about all these sacrifices that I've made on your behalf, the sacrifices I'm currently making on behalf of the churches, even now in my imprisonment, and the fact that I'm your spiritual father in the faith, and I want you to extend that love and sacrifice to Onesimus on my behalf. Could you, could you do me this, you know, could you do me this solid? Put, put this one on, on my account. I'll, I'll, I'll handle this. This instruction is supposed to inspire Philemon to even more love and acceptance than Paul is specifying here. Not to some grudging letter of the law. Ah, oh, what? He says, I gotta, okay, I gotta take him back, and then Paul's gonna take care of the bill. Well, that's good, because he took some stuff. That's not how, it's not the attitude he's supposed to have. In Christ, why would we cheat each other of the love and the grace that Jesus extended to us? Right? You know that parable, right, of the two servants and the one guy's like, you got to pay me this 25 bucks or whatever it was, you know, and he's been forgiven all this. That's the situation that we have to one another. Lord, you don't understand, this person really messed up. Lord's like, I, I do understand, actually, what it's like to have someone really mess up against me. And this is how I've treated that. So I'm asking you to treat it in the same way. Surely, even when it's difficult stuff, I know, but even in that case, surely we would be able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to extend those things to one another, to give each other that grace, to extend and to accept that forgiveness. That's also sometimes a thing you have to do. Right? It's hard on your pride to accept forgiveness. But we can do those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a commentator, uh, Bruce, who notes that this letter to Philemon, what it does is it brings the institution of slavery into an atmosphere where it could only wilt and die. Where master and slave were united in affection as brothers in Christ, formal emancipation would be a matter of expediency, the legal confirmation of their new relationship. And this is, by the way, historically exactly what happened. Slavery, which if you had looked at it on the face of it as an economist, you'd look at it and say, well, sla if slavery goes, the Roman Empire goes. There's no way that this works without slavery. That's the whole economy. Now, a couple things happened. Number one, slavery went. 
It's some, there's, there's stories, and it's difficult sometimes to confirm these, but it sure makes sense based on what we read in Scripture, doesn't it? That there were Christians who were martyred holding hands with their slaves that were part of their household. They're, they're you know, united in Jesus Christ, and they're both willing to face the same fate together. We belong together. That works for us, right? So, in that environment, how is this whole slave-holding thing supposed to last? What did it? Just like the gladiator games, just like exposing infants out on the hillside if you don't want them. Yeah, that stuff didn't last in Rome because pretty soon Rome became Christendom. And as each individual heart starts to be changed, people look at these things that they're doing culturally that are perfectly acceptable and say, what are we doing? We can't keep acting like this. This isn't how the Lord wants us to act. And that all of that begins to change well before you have a Constantine come along and say, this is the rule now. It just starts changing. Which is exactly how the gospel works in every culture that it touches. Pretty soon, way faster than people can even make laws, are people saying, yeah, that doesn't look like what it says here. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it the way that the Lord says I should do it. Praise the Lord. We don't have to rely on the letter of the law anymore. We have this illogical liberty of the gospel. It doesn't open the door to more sin, but to vast oceans of victory over sin. That's what we're always afraid of, right? Well, if we just do it that way, then everybody's just going to take advantage. You really think that two people who've been saved by Jesus are going to look at each other and say, yep, makes sense to me. Uh, I own you and you do whatever I say and I might kill you doesn't really sound like somebody who loves Jesus, right? doesn't sound like the heart of, of Christ. No, that's not going to be possible for somebody who genuinely loves Jesus. They're going to say, how far away from this can I get? What can we do between the two of us that would work this out? And that would even include, by the way, because we see these instructions in the New Testament, people who still had that legal status. Yeah, yeah, he, he lives in my house and I take care of him. And he, I guess technically you're my slave, right? But yeah, we're kind of, this is just, he's part of my household. He's my brother. That's, that's how these people saw these relationships, going further even than the letter of the law. 1 John 3, 16-18 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Why would we insist on our rights and demand justice when we can have something that's way better? Right? Oh, it's all about rights and justice. That's not good enough. That doesn't actually solve our problem. I need grace. And that's what Jesus is offering here. And this is what Paul is encouraging him. Now this conclusion in verse 22. It says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. We know that we believe that this prayer wasn't answered. And Paul was, was thinking forward and saying, you know, I think I'm, it's looking like I'm going to be able to get out of here. And I want to be able to come visit you again. And we don't believe that he was actually able to make good on that. He died at some point in Rome. Verse 23, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, Paul's praying for his release. Although this prayer wasn't answered the way he expected, he's faithful to the end. He considered himself a slave of Christ. And therefore, he was equal to just about anybody in, in the way that Jesus saw it. It wasn't above anybody, and nobody was below the love of a brother. And, and this is what we should all expect. If we're all seen that way in the Holy Spirit, then we should expect that this is the way that the Lord is going to accomplish the moving forward of the gospel. It's through the supernatural love that the Lord gives us for others. This supernatural power of the gospel is, by the way, the only proven results-driven solution for societies and cultures that are far from God. 
Because this is what happens. You say, well, this is, this is what the Lord's giving us. It's the gospel. That's ridiculous. I want results. I want something practical. Practically, this is what produces results. That's just historically how it is. When the gospel touches down on a society, that culture gets remade from the bottom up and becomes completely unrecognizable. Rome, Britain, the United States, for crying out loud. You can go read what people thought when they first came to the United States early on. They were like, this is a wild place. Everybody is awful and they need Jesus. <laughs> really quickly, especially if you got out on the frontier, right? Okay, maybe back there in Massachusetts, some of them are still okay, even though they're really mean. But you, you get out to the frontier and this is nuts. These people are acting like animals. You could read this over and over. And in... When you see these things, the ills of the world, you see, you, whether your heart is, you know, maybe you're the person that sees the injustice and that's what really just gets you. Or you're the person that the weakness and the immorality and the hard-heartedness is what bothers you. The best thing that you can do is to love Jesus zealously and to passionately bring, bring others along in your quest to become like him. There's a quote, one of my favorite quotes, I believe it is from... Um, I believe it's from Charles Finney in one of America's Great Awakenings where he's, he, he's talking about how he was preaching and the Holy Spirit was moving in such a way that he says, if I'd had a sword in each hand, I couldn't have cut people off their seats as fast as they fell over. Right? He's like, look, practically, I couldn't have done the work as well as the Lord did it. Look what the Lord did. I just started teaching and praying and this is what happened, right? That's how the Holy Spirit wants to move in your family and in your neighborhood and in our school district, in our city and whatever, right, that we're concerned about. That's how, I, I would like that. That sounds awesome. It would be really hard work for me to do that without the Holy Spirit, right? But that's what the Lord wants to do through us. This is one last quote before we take communion, but I, I, we have to read this. This is from uh, Charles Spurgeon, who I'm told is the Prince of Preachers, so it seems like we should just let him talk about this. Charles Spurgeon said, The transformation of the individual is the key to the transformation of society and the moral environment. But mark this word, the true reforming of the drunkard lies in giving him a new heart. The true reclaiming of the harlot is to be found in a renewed nature. I see certain of my brethren fiddling away at the branches of the tree of vice with their wooden saws. But as for the gospel, it lays the axe at the roots of the whole forest of evil to beautify the house of our master's glory. Oh, well, yeah, that's fine for Charles Spurgeon, but it's really bad today. Charles Spurgeon got threatening letters, sometimes even from people who claim to be believers because of his stance on actual human chattel slavery. I think it was really bad. <laughs> it was very bad for him. And he said, yeah, this is my solution. That's how it's going to work. So the Lord's going to fix it. And the Lord's going to fix all the terrible things that are going on in England with the, the economic horribleness and the industrial this and that and the, you know, all that. Yeah, the Lord's going to fix it. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. You know, they, they got that situation with slavery sorted way before we did and with a lot less civil war going on. And, and one of the ways that that happened is because they were much more open. Let's be honest. They were much more open to people from the church just standing up and saying, no, we can't keep doing this, right? Like, we can all see that this is wrong. And the Holy Spirit moved quickly and, and handled that situation in their midst because they were listening, honestly, to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about it. And praise the Lord, that's, that's what we want to see for us too, right? All those things that are bothering us that we're eating ourselves up about, the Lord is aware of those things. He wants to, don't you believe the Lord wants to solve all those things? And the way that he's chosen to solve them is through the power of the Holy Spirit reaching individual people and messing them up so badly that they can't even go back into the world and do this, that stuff again. How could I go back and do that? Not after what I've experienced with the Lord, right? 